Welcome to Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Until fairly recently, Neanderthals were thought of as stooped and club-wielding Ice Age cave people who could hunt pretty well, but were inferior in every other way to modern humans. But ideas about their relationship to our Homo sapien ancestors have changed a lot since 1856, when the fact that they'd even existed was determined. In her new book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art, Paleolithic archaeologist and science writer Rebecca Rag Sykes reveals Neanderthals as ancestors to many of us. Her book is published by Bloomsbury Sigma and brings Rebecca Rag Sykes to our show now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, this is just fascinating stuff. Uh, is it true that the existence of Neanderthals wasn't even known until discoveries were made 166 years ago? Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of amazing thing about Neanderthals. Um, we've known about them the longest. If you if you look at sort of human origins as a science now, there's loads of different species. But back then, sort of only 165 years ago, um, we didn't have any proof that there had ever been anything except us, Homo sapiens. Mm. And Neanderthals were the first that we recognized. And now there are any number of them. We'll get it to Denisovans uh, later. Uh, but the discovery was just three years before Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Did he even make any mention of them? Um, no, not in that book. But um, later on, um, he was certainly able to actually see a Neanderthal skull that came to Britain um, several years later in 1864 because the next one that was recognised um, was from Gibraltar and that was brought over in 1864 um, and he was shown it um, and his his response was apparently that it was wonderful. Um, so he didn't really write very much about them himself but we know he saw them and it must have factored into his thinking about sort of human origins and human evolution more broadly. Where was the first discovery of them made? Uh, it, I, I know it was uh, in the summer of 1856 in a, in a place that gave them the name Neanderthal? Yeah, so um, the first recognized find um, was in Germany in 1856 in a cave called the Kleinefeldhofer, um, so the small Feldhofer cave. Um, and this was in a really big... Um, marble and limestone quarry, not far from uh, Dusseldorf. I was there actually just a couple of months ago to do the German edition of my book, the launch there. Um, and it's uh, it was a really interesting landscape, um, sort of huge amounts of, of quarrying. Um, and that cave was being emptied out um, because they needed to get all the clay out so they could actually get the limestone, which is what they wanted. Um, but some of the quarry workers uh, realised that the bones that were mixed in with all this clay that they were blasting out with black powder, that those might be of some scientific interest and that they may not be um, animal bones. And so it was kind of local uh, scientists and natural historians that sort of recognized this. So what did they think that they'd found? This was in the Neanderth Valley, right? Yeah, so the, the valley is called the Neanderthal, and Tal means valley in German. Mm. Um, and 
Um, they kind of suspected that it was very old based on just the condition of the bones. Um, but eventually they got sent to an anatomist in uh, the city of Bonn and he looked at it and it was confirmed that it was a kind of human. It was not sort of a cave bear or anything like this. Hermann, um, so, Sch- Hermann Schaffhausen. Yeah, that's right. He said <clears throat> that the bones belong to a barbarous and savage race of humans. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's the language of the 19th century, very much about promoting some groups of humans over others. But the, the important point then was that it was recognised that this was, you know, was not another kind of animal and it was most similar to humans. Um, and the funny thing is that, you know, the name Neander actually means new man. Um, so you couldn't have a more appropriate sort of place to have the first discovery of another kind of hominin, the, the, the New Man Valley. <laughs> William King, a geologist at Queen's College Galway in Ireland, named the new species Homo neanderthalensis. Uh, and then more fossils were found, including the skeletons of two adults in Belgium in 1866 and a baby at the rock shelter uh, of Le Moussier in in France in 1914. What did the scholars at the time make of these discoveries? Did they agree that Neanderthals were an extinct species distinct from humans? Um, Well, I mean, that whole period from sort of the first discovery, 1856, um, and then it was translated into um, English in 1861. And immediately there was, you know, real controversy about what was the nature of this? You know, was it just a human who was like a historic human from a few hundred years ago, maybe, who had been sort of weirdly sick or something like this? Um, Or, as most people suspected, it really was very, very old. And in which case, where did that fit in terms of the evolutionary setting for humans? Was it some kind of full-on halfway house between other apes and humans? Well, what was going on? And not everybody agreed with that. Other people um, saw the overwhelming similarity, really, in terms of the anatomy of the skull, for example, that they really were much more like um, all living humans than they were like other apes. Um, So I think kind of by the early 20th century, that the notion of, of what Neanderthals were was quite fixed, that they were another sort of ancient kind of human, but people weren't entirely certain what that meant in terms of sort of possible age, because they were still lacking any way of directly dating things at this point. But wasn't the Parisian anatomist Marcelin Boulle responsible for creating the popular image of Neanderthals as being ugly creatures with stooped spines and a decidedly ape-like appearance? Uh, Was that because he'd inaccurately reconstructed a skeleton? Yeah, I mean, Boulle was um, a very well-respected anatomist, and he actually looked at a lot of different Neanderthals that were being excavated from about 1907 onwards. He had all sorts of things in his lab in Paris. Um, And he was very well aware of sort of the, the details of the anatomy, but he was kind of part of one different way of thinking about Neanderthals, that maybe they were a branch that had nothing to do with humans and with with homo sapiens humans or um you know in opposition to other people who thought maybe that they may have been our direct ancestors it was it was all very confusing and one of the really famous illustrations um that had 
you know, it was hugely influential on later reconstruction of Neanderthals. And Boulle was involved with that. And that shows this Neanderthal, which was based on a French site, La Chapelle aux Sons. Um, that was a full skeleton, basically, almost, almost full. Um, and that shows a really hairy very gorilla-like looking sort of face um, holding like a, a, a club of bone and just looking really quite aggressive and, as you say, bent over. But the feet actually um, also look really ape-like. But just the next year, a different anthropologist produced a different illustration of a, of a Neanderthal. And it, it really just looks like, you know, a human sitting by a fire, making things, you know, having culture. So already at the beginning of the 20th century, views were really, really disparate. But don't we now have specimens from between 200 and 300 <coughs> Neanderthals, ranging from newborns to adults and ranging in age from 50, uh, from uh, up to their 50s or even 60s? That doesn't sound like a lot of specimens, considering the fact that the Neanderthals numbered in the many millions over the course of their existence. Well, what we've got, basically, we've got probably thousands of sites for Neanderthals, literally millions of stone tools of their artefacts. <clears throat> and we have thousands of pieces of bone, actually, and teeth, but they represent altogether about a couple of hundred individuals. So maybe that doesn't sound like very much, but actually, if you look at all the other hominin species that we study from, you know, well over three million years of history, um, the Neanderthal sample is actually really quite large. Um, and as you say, we have uh, individuals from, from newborns, even slightly premature um, infants, all the way through toddlers into um, teenagers. We can see sort of awkward adolescents in Neanderthals um, and older uh, individuals as well, like elders. Um, so given all that, we actually can say an awful lot about how they developed over their lifespan and apply all sorts of really amazing 21st century sort of technologies and archaeological science to really zoom in and look at these questions about sort of their bodies, how they evolved, how they developed. You know, we can actually trace the individual growth lines in their teeth, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and see sort of the point at which babies stop breastfeeding and things like this. It's absolutely incredible. We, we've discovered all those things, well, of, over the years. The first humans were in sub-Saharan Africa. Were Neanderthals descended from them? Um, well, what you can think of is that the the genus Homo, of which we're part, so we're Homo sapiens, um, then you have other species, Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis. So that genus has a very ancient origin in Africa, well before a million years, probably before two million years ago, in fact. Um, ourselves and Neanderthals, we shared a common ancestor, another Homo um, species or population, only around sort of half a million years ago, maybe 750,000 years ago. So that's much, much more recent. We don't know exactly where that ancestral population lived that would give rise <clears throat> to ourselves and to Neanderthals as well. Um, but in an evolutionary sense, that was really, really recent. And actually, therefore, we should expect to see a lot of similarities physically between ourselves and Neanderthals, and we do, um, and also behaviourally as well. Well, when, when did they dis emerge as a distinct population? I've read a wide range, 450,000, 400,000, 350,000 years ago. Has a figure come to be agreed upon by now? 
Well, the issue is it depends on what definition you're talking about. And when we look at fossils, we're not sort of looking at distinct sort of classifications because the scientific classification of fossils has to be based on a process that we see through time where we kind of have to sort of dip in and create little artificial pigeonholes in that process. But overall, I think most scholars would say, like you say, that um, somewhere between about 400 and 350,000 years ago, Hmm. that's when Neanderthals really begin to be more clearly visible as a Western Eurasian population. And do we know where they emerged? Because they lived in a wide range of environments from North Wales to China and the Arabian deserts. Also climates um, ranging from glacial to tropical. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, over that whole period, um, so so they emerged like between 400 to 350, and then they are around until only 40,000 years ago. So that is hundreds of thousands of years they're around. And like you say, that actually covers many cycles of climate change. So periods like today when it's when it's warm and much colder times. But yeah, they also did sort of exist across a really large geographic range as well, um, mostly Western Eurasia. Um, but in that sort of spread, we can't see exactly where they originated, but we're pretty sure that they were not an African population. We, we have never found anything that that seems to hint at Neanderthal-like anatomy evolving anywhere in Africa. So it's probably somewhere either in the Near East region or um, in Europe or slightly east of Europe. Um, but they are definitely a, a Eurasian hominin. That's where they emerged. That's where they're adapted to. And were they there even before the so-called Cro-Magnons arrived? Or are we still using the term Cro-Magnon? <laughs> That's a little bit outdated now. I mean, Cro-Magnon is basically just one site that was found in the 19th century when people were sort of trying to understand the age of Homo sapiens people as well as finding Neanderthals. And, you know, it was all a bit confusing. Cro-Magnons are basically just Homo sapiens people who lived about 30,000 years ago. Um, So they're the same as us, essentially. Um, But one thing that has really, really changed in the past 20 years of research is that what we used to believe is that Homo sapiens populations who who evolved and emerged in Africa only really began to disperse into Eurasia about 40,000 years ago, um, around the time of the the Cro-Magnon site. But that picture has really shifted. Now we can see that there was dispersals beginning more than 150,000 years ago. So this process of of some populations of Homo sapiens beginning to sort of go off and get into Eurasia was much, much earlier. And that is interesting in itself, but it has implications for some of the narratives that we told about Neanderthals. The main one being as soon as Homo sapiens arrive in Eurasia, Neanderthals are gone. Now we know that's not true because Neanderthals are obviously doing their thing in Eurasia, Homo sapiens are going into Eurasia very early, but Neanderthals don't disappear. There's a huge span of time over which they're still there. Homo sapiens are still there. And we also know that there's interbreeding happening. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Rebecca Rag Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. Her book, Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death and Art, is published by Bloomsbury Sigma. 
This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Until recently, weren't they thought to have lived fairly close to their hearth and home sites, eking out a living and incapable of much creativity beyond basic survival? When uh, did that begin to change? Well, I think to be fair, um, that's kind of, you know, the the cliched view about Neanderthals. And to some extent that has hung around in popular culture because we all know very well that people will use the word Neanderthal as an Mm. insult, particularly in politics, actually. Um, But I think actually, you know, for certainly for archaeologists, um, this notion that Neanderthals were uninventive or just did the same thing all the time, inflexible that has really been swept away for quite some time now but it's it's become even more clear over the past few decades and um, but i think even in sort of you know the wider public understanding people have been picking this this message up for some time now and they they do understand that neanderthals were sort of a lot more clever than have than they've been given credit for i think Well, you note that Neanderthals, I'm quoting, possess pop cultural cachet like no other, but that too much of that cachet is constructed from stereotypes. Uh, The early view of them as the ultimate other stems from 19th century colonialism and racial biases. And haven't some white supremacists disputed what's now being claimed about uh, (laughs) their history and and their, uh, their much more sophisticated lives? Yeah, I mean, the whole history of um, Neanderthals and human origins, you know, there's there's always a context to this in terms of history of science itself and developing views and how that is set within particular dominant cultural viewpoints. And so for the 19th century, for the vast majority, um, you're talking about either an implicit or explicit white supremacist view mm-hmm. um you know you've got racial classifications um essentially being used to underpin colonial enterprises in all sorts of places um so that's certainly clear um for neanderthals um but yeah even today um it's quite fascinating and sort of disturbing how Neanderthals have shifted from something that was regarded as, you know, I guess something to insult um, and to insult others with, like I just said, and people will use the word as an insult. Um, but because Neanderthals have over time been more closely um, associated with being a European species, and when some of the initial genetic work was done, um, there was a, a study that said that some Neanderthals um, probably had pale skin and, and red hair and, and, and blue eyes. Um, in fact, there was all sorts of different um, sort of colouring uh, for Neanderthals. Um, but people began to pick up on this notion that Neanderthals were some kind of hyper-European origin. Um, and that fitted in quite well with some um, of the resurgence in white supremacist narratives as focusing on sort of European homelands and all this stuff. So you'll, you know, as a researcher working in this area and somebody that does science communication, um, you will hear all sorts of very weird things from people who have really um, sort of read some science and basically twisted it. And so they'll claim 
quite proudly, oh, I've got 11% Neanderthal DNA. Hmm. And that somehow makes them really special because they're extra European and extra white. And it's complete nonsense. You can't have, you know, 11% Neanderthal DNA is greater than anything we've ever seen in the fossil record when we know people were into breeding relatively recently. You know, it just, it's rubbish, um, basically. And we now now know that... uh, People who are not completely of sub-Saharan heritage carry between 1.8 and 2.6% Neanderthal DNA, which doesn't strike me as a lot. But um, when did scientists look into possible links between Neanderthals and modern humans since DNA was discovered in 1869, around the same time as, as the Neanderthals? Well, this is all quite recent. We've it's only since 2010, so 12 years now, that we've been able to access um, any of the genome information for Neanderthals. And that's where um, we're able to now say, in fact, in fact it's it's more um, than, than what you just said. We now believe that everybody alive does have some Neanderthal DNA. Um, and people who are from a sub-Saharan African background um, do have a very tiny amount. Um, what they have may effectively be sort of coming back into Africa later through historical uh, movements. And so it's not sort of quite the same process, but but they do have it. So it's everybody's everybody's heritage. Um, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's of relevance and importance in so many ways for understanding what Neanderthals were doing in the past, what their interactions with, with uh, Homo sapiens people in the past were. It has some sort of interest today in terms of our continuing development and health. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the misuse and the, the appropriation of scientific stuff, no researchers working today would ever support the, the white supremacist kind of use of these things. But uh, even 2.6% Neanderthal DNA isn't all that much, is it? Well, not not on a larger scale, no. I mean, there was an interesting study recently that um, suggested sort of the opposite in a way that something like 90% of our genome is shared or sort of shared or commonly part of the broader Hmm. hominin home genome. So there's only a very tiny amount that makes us especially um different um but part of that is um part of that that broader hominin heritage is is shared by neanderthals but then we got stuff later again sort of crossing over from the later into breeding but it does seem to be quite important um some of the the genes um that were retained from numerous phases of interbreeding seem to be related to things like immunity um and that could have been really useful if you were part of a new population of homo sapiens entering Eurasia, you're going into an environment which has novel pathogens, so new illnesses that you're going to be encountering, um, all sorts of things where immunity could actually be really useful to keep those genes. Is it now believed that Neanderthals saw, heard, smelled, and possibly even spoke much like we do? Oh, um, well, <laughs> all of those are quite different. Um, I think, yeah. What's led to of- that thinking uh, suddenly after, I mean, we've come a long way from the old, the old idea of these terrible brutes. Yeah, I mean, vision is going to be pretty similar. Um, there may have been some differences in um, smell, um, but it's quite difficult to be entirely sure about that. Um, there are some hints with genetics 
But um, sort of how they heard and the language question is really, really fascinating. And there have been a lot of advances recently about that. Um, one of the things that that's um, sort of come forward um, in 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 relatively recent research is that they probably could hear at very comparable sound frequencies as us and the sounds that our ears are most tuned into um, relate to to speech those sound frequencies and um, so neanderthals appear to really be sort of having a similar sort of focus in their hearing as well um, which implies along with anatomical features um, sort of about their throats and things um, that some kind of vocal communication some sort of talking was really important to them every day but you know making sounds is one thing and there's going to be some meaning to those but in terms of the 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 complexity of the information in whatever language that was that's always the big question you know are they able to have long complicated sentences can they talk about the past and the present and things like this and that's where we need to look at the archaeology to see what they actually did in their lives. Their bodies were short and, and heavily muscled. Their skulls had these brow ridges. They had prominent noses. And they had this oxy, occipital bun, uh, a bump on the back. Do we know why? Um, well, the, the little bump on the back of the head is probably to do with um, visual processing systems. Um, and it might be that... I mean, there have been some interesting suggestions about that, that because Neanderthals are living at high latitudes um, where you have very seasonal amounts of light, um, perhaps it's an adaptation to that, that they maybe um, they needed to you know, be able to see better in low light conditions. Um, but we're not we're not totally sure. But in terms of their overall body shape, um, some of it is probably related to um dealing with over long periods of time living in cooler environments and so if you have a more massive um body that's not stretched out and very tall and thin that's going to help you um sort of keep warm um but other aspects of of their bodies um you know the thing about evolution and anatomy um there's not always like a just so story explaining it precisely and neatly sometimes you can have physical features that arise and persist um as long as they don't do anything that's damaging to the reproductive success of of those organisms of of, of those creatures then they might just hang about so they're kind of what we call neutral um modifications or mutations it's not quite the same thing as being a, a useful adaptation but with like one thing that's um also shifting, I think, is that I mentioned cold conditions, and that's probably important. Well, the, 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 the anatomy was explained as <laughs> an adaptation to glacial conditions, but yeah. haven't we learned that uh, Neanderthals also thrived in uh, in steppe tundra, even Mediterranean woodlands? Yeah, exactly. And so this is one of the things where ideas have shifted a little bit in terms of how we think about the biology, and that's to do with, you know, ideas maybe that large Neanderthal noses because they did have quite large holes where the noses would go on the skull um, people used to think well perhaps that is a, a means to warm up cold air before it goes into your body and now people are thinking actually the whole sort of difference in terms of larger noses 
big lungs, big chests, maybe that's to do with them living really intensive hunting and gathering lifestyles where they need a huge amount of oxygen to basically fire their metabolism. Um, and so it's it's not so much to do with the cold or the climate, but more about how they are adapted to live very physically intensive lives. And we can we know that they're doing this because we can see on the rest of their bodies um, markings on the bones which show that they had really, really well-developed muscles. So they would have been immensely impressive to meet in person. But their bodies were very different. Um, uh, the male's arms were asymmetric, while women's lower arms were well-developed. Uh, would that indicate that uh, they specialize in doing certain kinds of work? Well, overall, their bodies are remarkably similar to us. If you look at sort of much, much older hominins like Lucy, like people might have heard the Lucy, this fossil, like 3.3 million years old. They're very small. They look much more chimpish. Neanderthals compared to them look much more just like a person. They're just a little bit shorter, much more heavily built. And there are differences in their face. But overall, they really just look like an upright human. Um, but in terms of sort of how they use their bodies, there are some differences um, visible potentially between males and females. So this is kind of, you know, on a, a relatively small level, you wouldn't be able to see like uh, males having one massive arm and one small arm. It's to do with measuring sort of um, the the development of the bone and things. So you can do, you do scans, or you take measurements. Um, but yes, what we can see perhaps is that, um, some male Neanderthals appear to have been using one of their arms more than the other, um, whereas in the relatively few females that we that we have, it looks like they are using both arms at the same time more often. Um, and connect this to other kinds of data, we have, for example, tiny scratches on their teeth, um, which is actually not to do with eating food, but to do with using their mouths um, to, for tasks, to hold things or to process stuff. And there does seem to be some difference there as well in just the patterning um, of these scratches between male and female. So although it's quite sort of ephemeral, there is a hint that maybe the experiences of life um, hmm. were already somewhat different um, depending on your sex, basically. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Rebecca Rag Sykes. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death, and Art. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And if you do that, we'll be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Rebecca Rag Sykes, um, 
whose book is Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death, and Art, published by Bloomsbury Sigma, and already um, uh, called a New York Times 100, 100 notable book. Um, now, uh, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the, the fact that uh, you write that Neanderthals had sophisticated tools, built home environments, made art and ornamentation, had family structures, possibly even enjoyed a rich culinary world. And, and there's even evidence that they tidied up. How do we know all of that? Oh, well, we know all that thanks to the power of archaeology. <laughs> um, yeah, like similar to sort of the, the difference in, in how evolution was understood and the possibilities about different fossil species and things in the 19th century, the way that early prehistorians actually did archaeology is drastically different to what we do today. So back then, um, it was not uncommon to sort of dynamite stuff out of a cave or just, you know, dig very rapidly through deposits and clear a whole cave out in a few weeks. Now we don't do that because we actually understand the immense amount of stuff in archaeological sites that it's possible to find. So not only stone tools, they're obvious, you know, they've always been obvious and early prehistorians collected them. But what they didn't understand was that in, say, you've got one layer that looks a particular colour, even within that layer, there could be many different sub layers, different phases of occupation that you can pull out if you assess the sediment really carefully and things like this. Whereas back then, they would just take that whole stuff out as one layer, when in fact it might represent 4,000 or more years of Neanderthal activity. Um, so we understand the nature of the archaeological record itself now and how sites form. And also we've got all sorts of modern scientific um, techniques that, that mean that we can sort of pick out every kind of little preserved thing in sites that, that early early scholars and prehistorians would never even have thought that, that were there. Things like, you know, the, the wing scales of beetles or even DNA in the sediments themselves now we can get. And we have um, a so pretty good idea of the things that they... Uh, that they ate, they successfully hunted enormous beasts, you say, including 1,100-pound horses, but also knew how to take advantage of whatever the regional ecology offered as food, ranging from tortoises to jays and magpies. Uh, and I was uh, uh, amused to learn that um, they lived uh, in, in Britain when hippos and elephants inhabited the islands. I didn't even know that hippos and elephants were in, in Britain. Yeah, up in Yorkshire. I mean, other than in, in the, the zoo. The London Zoo, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this that was during one of those times that I said before when it was um warm. Um in fact it was slightly warmer than it is now, sort of by um up to two degrees, maybe a bit more warmer, um, which is why you have um, animals which are more familiar from um, more tropical uh, regions um, right up into Europe. Um, so that that time when we had hippos um, in, in Yorkshire was around 122, 123,000 years ago. Um, and sea levels were 
five to seven meters higher than they are now because it really was warmer um but there were different periods like that but yeah in terms of like the animals that they knew and that they encountered um it's definitely been clear since the beginning of, of study on them that they were hunting big creatures because we could see those bones but like other questions about you know could they hunt small game that was one of the things that remain debated um, even up to relatively recently um, because some people were arguing, well, maybe it's just really difficult to hunt small stuff like, like rabbits or birds. And maybe Neanderthals were basically too silly to be able to, to know how to do that, how to catch them, um, because the method of hunting is obviously totally different than if you're hunting a rhinoceros. Um, however, we've got a really good picture now from many, many sites for Neanderthals that in some times and places when it made sense for them, they absolutely could hunt um, small game, um, not only small game, um, but marine resources as well. So they were quite happy um, collecting shellfish along the shores, looking in rock pools, um, butchering things that washed up. You know, um, we have dolphin and things like this in some places. Um, so the impression is that although they were largely focused on hunting big or medium game, so like down in the Mediterranean, in the woodlands, a lot of red deer instead of mammoth or woolly rhino. Well, um, bison, horses, you say yeah, rhinoceroses so, as, as well as reindeer. Yeah, they would take what was what was best in their environment. And you can see this impression of um, really clear selection and choice, not only in the species, but in the animals that they choose. So they most often seem to go for prime age animals. And then when you zoom in and look at an individual kill site where we have the archaeology for this, um, you can see them really selecting out the best parts of the animal's carcass to focus on to butcher, to take with them to another site and then secondarily process. So wow. smash up those bones for the marrow. They know animals' bodies really well. They know where all the fat is and the marrow, which is what they want. You write that they crafted dozens of types of stone blades as well as long, finely tapered wooden spears, shell tools, bone hammers, and and that w they used tactical planning to ambush groups of prey? We know that? Well, uh, no, I mean, like, in terms of the, the hunting method specifically, that's us making inferences mm. based on the tools. the tools that we can see mm. and the possibilities. Um, so if you have... Uh, a tool that a spear for example that looks like it's probably intended to be to be thrusted rather than actually thrown then that's going to affect the possible ways that you can hunt particular animals um, but we it is absolutely clear that they were hunting um really really large animals for example there's a, a german site um, called Scherning, which is about 330,000 years old um it's a lakeshore site and we've got multiple different spears from there, which do actually look like they're throwing spears. But what they're doing there is um, it's, it's, it's revisited many times and they're focusing on horses. But they're not the little horses that you see in Ice Age cave art much later. These are really big horses, an extinct kind of horse that are much more like, you know, today's thoroughbred racing horses. They're massive. Um, so you really have to be... Um, very focused um, and ambushing at horses when they're in water makes a lot of sense. And that's exactly the setting for that site. And, um, 
And they incised a hyena bone in ways that suggest an early notation system, and they applied color pigment to objects. Uh, so uh, were they also making art? Well, if, uh, I mean, art is a really sort of tricky term. Yeah, they, didn't do, um, they didn't do cave paintings the way uh, modern humans did. Not that we know. So when we think about cave paintings and cave art, what we don't see Neanderthals doing so far is any representational imagery, basically. So they don't seem to be creating images of people or of animals. Um, what we can see them doing um, from many different places and different kinds of evidence is they seem interested in... Um, the aesthetic potential of changing surfaces, basically. So using mineral pigments, colour, natural colours, ochres, um, to apply them on surfaces. And sometimes they're surfaces of unusual things, for example, a fossil shell that was collected um, or an eagle's talon. And in a couple of cases, we actually have evidence that they are mixing together different colours to make a new colour, which is really quite cognitively sophisticated to understand that process. And also, like you say, we have evidence from a number of sites that they were altering surfaces in a different way by engraving or incising them, mostly with um, sort of linear series, little marks. Um, but there's one site that was published last year from Germany, um, which has a the toe bone of a, of a giant deer, a kind of giant deer. And on it is kind of a series of interlocking um, lines forming like a chevron pattern. Hmm. And that is the most complex thing we've ever found Neanderthals doing. And it's not that dissimilar to what we see earlier Homo sapiens people doing in um, African contexts, where, for example, we've got much more um, sort of... Uh, repetitively complicated graphic engravings on things like ostrich eggshell. And those are about 80,000 years old. On and the other so hand, that's quite similar. didn't they practice cannibalism? Um, yes, they did in some times and places, yeah. Um, with that, um, sometimes we might be looking at sort of starvation situations or aggression, but I actually don't think that that should be the sort of baseline assumption for all sites, because if you look at what living or recent people do with the dead, there are all sorts of cultural practices all around the world. And most of them don't look anything like the Western <laughs> um, practice of putting people in a very neat rectangular pit in the ground. Um, so, the fact that Neanderthals were sometimes processing bodies, taking them apart, sometimes consuming them, um, that would actually fit in with a, a diverse range of cultural practices around, around death, what we call mortuary practice. Um, and, you know, if we, we can look at what humans do, but also if you look at what other primates do, it's so clear that for, for our closest relations, chimpanzees and bonobos, um, when an individual dies, because they live in very small groups, they have really strong emotional bonds with each other. When an individual dies, it is a huge trauma for all of them. And the thing that they all focus on is interacting with the body. 
They'll hang out with it for ages. They'll try and groom it, try and move it. Um, there's even a records of one of them, like, toothpicking their friend who had just died. They use little natural toothpicks. Um, so for me, the, the idea that Neanderthals would ever just sort of stop paying attention to somebody once they died and treat it like just sort of a rock or something, that makes no sense at all purely in in them being just primates like we are they would have had massive emotional responses to the dead and we shouldn't assume that those responses would necessarily reflect western christian traditions why should they um so that's kind of how i approach the question about cannibalism and and butchery of the dead my guest on today's leonard located lodge is rebecca rag sykes her book kindred neanderthal life Love, Death, and Art is published by Bloomsbury Sigma. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, in the, the time we have left for us, we have to deal with the fact that they disappeared. If they were so competent, cooperative, and cultural, why did they die out? Uh, were, did Homo sapiens do something uh, different, or did Homo sapiens also die out in some areas for the same reasons that Neanderthals did. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different strands to this, and you've you've just raised several of them. Um, <clears throat> of course, Neanderthals are not here in the sense of walking about still looking like Neanderthals. Um, they are still here in one sense because they are present in the genomes of everybody alive, um, so in that sense, they're not sort of technically extinct, but yes, of course, they, they're not still here in a, in a broad sense. Um, but I think the question about extinction has been so strongly um, influenced since their, their discovery 165 years ago um, by our assumptions that the reason we're still here is because we're better than Neanderthals. And things are not that Well, with that, we, we built larger and stronger social networks, which... Uh... Yeah, I mean, what, what we can say, I think, in terms of recent research about this question, one is that climate is probably not a major driver in why they're not why they vanished because oh, it was getting colder in that last 10,000 years that they were around but they had dealt with cold before and they had dealt with unstable climates so, so that can't so just be I, it. I've, I've read again and again that climate change uh, was a major factor in their dying out and you're saying that is not true what about uh, terrible contagion because right now we are living in a world of climate change and contagious diseases. <laughs> and I'm wondering if there are any lessons to be learned from all of this. Uh, well, I have just had COVID. That's why I'm coughing all the time. So yes, it's on my mind as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, in terms of, yeah, the climate change might be part of it. But as you say, there are, are other things. We, we can't see any evidence at all for any kind of disease or pandemic. That doesn't mean that that might not have been part of it, but there's no direct evidence for it. Well, that you we can say they, see. they went extinct 40,000 years ago. So, what, yeah. what led to their population collapse? Well, what we think now is that it, it's probably a long term process where they were already shrinking as a population, and we're not entirely sure why. But you, you mentioned the social network aspect, and this, I think, is really key. Um, what we can see now from the DNA research on Neanderthals and 
DNA research on contemporary Homo sapiens people is that Neanderthals were living in more isolated subpopulations. So they weren't all inbred because they were in tiny populations, but some of them were in populations that were so small that they basically were inbred. Um, and that is totally different than what we see in the Homo sapiens people around at the same time. They are, there's not a lot of them and there's not a lot of Neanderthals, but the Homo sapiens people seem to be able to remain better connected with each other, probably over longer distances. So what we might be looking at are um, cognitive um, and social means by which they're able perhaps to plan to meet up and Neanderthals are not doing that. Maybe Neanderthals are meeting each other um, just by chance more often. You know, if there's lots of animals around, they might meet then. But with Homo sapiens people, you get the impression that there is more structure in how their social networks are actually organised. And we can see a reflection in the archaeology with this as well, because there are more objects that seem related to aesthetics or symbolic factors with the early Homo sapiens people. And that might be part of their ability to maintain um, a cultural identity across larger areas and involving more people. You're right. Um, we have very little time, but I want to address this. Quote, the sheer amount of information is hard to process. Few specialists have time to read every fresh article in their own subfield, never mind the total scholarly output. So is it likely that we're only beginning to understand their true story? And has the discovery of the Denisovans complicated the story even more? Are there still many unknowns? Oh, of course there's unknowns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the, the amount of stuff that we found out is vast. And that was exactly why I wanted to write the book, because there's so much in the scientific literature, so many amazing jaw-dropping things that don't even make it into the newspapers. So I wanted to share all that. But yeah, there is still so many questions about Neanderthals. You know, we know that interbreeding is happening, but what's the nature of the interbreeding? You know, is it conflict? Were individuals just encountering each other mm. or were in groups living alongside each other? And that's the kind of thing that the ongoing new research, more and more samples for DNA, that kind of thing we're actually going to be able um, over the long term to start to really um, throw some light on. And those are the most fascinating questions. And the discovery of the Denisovans? Uh, yeah, Denisovans are part are of they that. An, because... Are they another group altogether, unlike the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens? Um, what Denisovans are, they were first found um, genetically. Um, it was a, a small um, piece of bone that turned out to not be genetically the same as Neanderthals or Homo sapiens. Um, we still actually don't really know what Denisovans look like because we only have a few bits of bone from them from Siberia and further east into Asia. Um, but they essentially are like a, a close cousin group of Neanderthals but they seem to have had a larger population. This is based on the genetics and probably been able to deal with environments that Neanderthals couldn't, including higher altitudes and perhaps tropical environments as well. Um, but they're also fascinating because they were also interbreeding with Neanderthals and with us. So not only do we know this from the genetics, but we also have an amazing object which is a tiny fragment of bone which is from an individual a girl whose mother was a neanderthal and whose father was a denisovan huh. the fact that we have actually found that you know what we call a first generation hybrid 
the, the likelihood of finding, ever finding a bone like that would be hugely rare mm-hmm. if that was not common, if interbreeding was was a rare thing in itself, you just wouldn't find it. So the Denisovans are really important because they show, as well as all these other kinds of evidence, that when different kinds of hominins met each other, although maybe there's different social aspects to this, basic interbreeding, having sex, was a normal outcome. And the hybrid children from those encounters sometimes were able to survive and have their own children in whichever group that they were that they were living. They obviously had enough in common that they could interbreed. Uh, in just a minute, uh, is it likely now that we found the Denisovans that we're going to find other species of hominins? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot more to come from Asia. We have an awful um, large amount of um, bones from there from from the sort of the same period as Neanderthals and Denisovans and a bit older. And we don't have DNA from those yet because it's difficult in warmer environments. The same thing is true in Africa. We have lots and lots of bones from Africa. We, we can kind of think about fossil groups and how they might relate to each other. Well, we've got virtually no DNA um, older than than a few tens of thousands of years from Africa. Um, that is going to be one of the huge areas if um, we can keep developing our, our methods and our techniques for actually accessing the genomes. And we have to um, leave it there, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, we've run out of time. This is so much fun. Rebecca Rag Sykes, her book, Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death and Art, published by Bloomsbury Sigma. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to alert you to a very serious problem that's facing this station. WBAI is now two months behind in paying the fee to have our signal transmitted from the broadcast tower at Fort Times Square. FM needs to be broadcast from a tower because its signal is, is a straight line. So if you want to reach any distance, you've got to be uh, broadcast from high up. The rent comes to $17,000 a month, and we're asking our listeners to consider stepping up and supporting us financially as we struggle to stay afloat and on the air during these difficult times. So if you haven't done it already, please Please make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to help keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And as I mentioned earlier... Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Kidred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art by Rebecca Rag Sykes. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. We would say thank you for that with a WBAI tote bag. Uh, and anyone who becomes a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be free, completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, 
Give us that call, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. We are the only station that's 100% listener-sponsored here in New York. Uh, and, um, well, WBAI will be broadcasting the next January 6th congressional hearing tomorrow, but we'll be back on Friday with Lori Garver and a discussion of her new book, Escaping Gravity, and I hope you can join us then.